guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. guys welcome back to the show this is melissa and i hope you've got that glass of wine or bubbles ready because we're about to talk about some crazy shit in history and i'm so stoked because i'm inviting some extra special ladies onto the show today who are experts in all things crazy history shit and that's leanne rachel from the hashtag history podcast I am so stoked. I think I've said it a million times before. The podcast community is so awesome. Like, super supportive, super friendly, super welcoming, and always down for a collaboration. So today, Hashtag History is taking the reins on Mimosa Sisterhood, and they're going to tell you all about a crazy moment in time, the Salem Witch Trials, which... I'm sure everybody has heard of before, but Rachel and Leah are going to break that bitch down and tell you all the tea and all the deets about what really happened and why. So my mind was blown after this episode. I learned so much that I did not know about the Salem Witch Trials, and I always just love learning more things about culture, religion, ethics, you know, the way in which our society has really evolved since the 1600s. So yeah, this episode is just jam-packed with so much history, so much knowledge, and I think you guys are going to really like it. So before we get into it, I do have another really cool announcement, and that is specifically for anybody out there that is not currently subscribed to my monthly newsletter. I've been preaching the choir on this newsletter for like six months now. I'm never going to stop because it's fucking rad. And if you aren't signed up yet, you are literally missing a very important piece of your life. But it's not too late. So if you head to my website right now, mimosasisterhood.com, you will see a pop-up that tells you that if you subscribe to the newsletter and fill out all of your information, you will receive a postcard in the mail that features my absolutely gorgeous cover art. And it will also include a very nice handwritten note from me thanking you for being a part of this incredible Mimosa Sisterhood community and for signing up for my favorite thing that I've ever created outside of this podcast, which is this monthly women's magazine, which is what I call it. So pause this podcast and go sign up and your postcard will be arriving in the next couple of days. Woo! Now, go grab your drinks because it's time to party and we're about to get into some witchy bitch shit. Oh my God, 
I am super excited to have you guys on the show. Welcome to Mimosa Sisterhood, Rachel and Leah. Welcome. We're ready to drink. We're ready to talk about some history. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, so let's start with who's Rachel and who's Leah so that everybody can get the voices down before we get into yes. it. Yes, so Rachel is me. Uh, <laughs> I, Rachel. <laughs> and I, Leah, I'm the baritone of the of the duo. Is that true? Is your voice lower than mine? Significantly, yes. Oh, I guess I just noticed it right now when I kind of like moved into a different octave. Like, what? That's not true. Yeah, I guess that is true. <laughs> so it's a, I it's am a perfect Rachel. balance. Yeah, <laughs> I, and I know I know some podcasts I I struggle differentiating between the host voices. I've never heard that on our podcast, so I guess there must Mm-mm. be enough of a difference between us. Yeah, so we are hashtag history. We're a history podcast that our slogan is that we cover history's greatest stories of controversy conspiracy and corruption so we've covered things like chappaquiddick jack the ripper sinking of the titanic uh we even covered the history of disneyland oh isn't there a lot of weird shit happening over there oh yeah we we covered most of the happy happy and like the opening day Mm -hmm. the craziness that happened on opening day um but a little thing that we do that i it kind of puts us more in a niche uh, or a niche, if you will, is uh, we tailor a cocktail that kind of coincides with with each week's episode. So, for example, for the sinking of the Titanic episode, we had a like blue color drink that had a huge piece of ice in it that represented the iceberg. And then we had like little floating um, what P- floating pineapples. pineapples to like represent like the the floating people in the water. It was kind of dark. <laughs> <laughs> It was a little dark, okay, and 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 we get a little dark, but it's 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 all fun. We we try to come at everything with a little sense of humor. Yes, yes. love it. So are I feel like are you guys like real hardcore history nerds? Um, so I Rachel will speak first. <laughs> uh, I that was my major in college uh, oh, was nice. history. Yeah, so I'm a huge history buff. Like if you come to my house and look at, I have a an actual library in my house um 90 of the books are about like world war ii so oh love it <laughs> yeah. yeah and i would say i it's definitely i am not as big of a history buff as rachel is um it's it's a passion of mine though i i have always liked learning about history especially like european world history has always interested me a lot especially since i took a really great world history course in in college but because we cover history's you know, controversies, conspiracies, and corruptions that allows mm-hmm. us to delve into these other interests and passions that we have, such as like true crime. Uh, mm-hmm. We cover kind of more historical true crime topics a lot of the time. And it also allows us to delve into like badass feminism, uh, talking about some really amazing women in history, too. So it- it's cool. We-, we get to touch on all the interests that we have. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so you guys are based out of Sacramento, right? We, we are. are. We're Cali I was girls. Just in Sacramento a couple weeks ago. <gasps> oh. And I only was there for like four hours, but I was like, oh my God, I'm out at the bars. I probably should have like hit up my hashtag friends and <laughs> said, come meet me for a drink. I am ultra sad that you didn't. <laughs> I know. I so I was on the way to Tahoe mm. and I 
did a pit stop in Sacramento for like four hours because my boyfriend wanted to stop off at some motocross track and I was like well I'm not gonna sit at the track all day and so one of my best friends actually lives in Sacramento so I had him drop me off in Sacramento while he was out doing his thing and then he came and round and picked me up later and I was like love it very much seven cocktails deep um <laughs> i'm and then, like drove to tahoe major fomo right now i wish I that know. we had been there i know and you know I, I don't know where you guys live in sacramento but my friend just moved to like midtown area okay and um that's where we were so we were at like a couple different outdoor it, you know uh-huh. the life was still closed at that point but there were a couple different outdoor places we went to and yeah, it was Midtown a lot of fun. Midtown is great for food and drinks and stuff. That's a really great area. So yeah. she's going to have some fun living there. Yeah. yeah. It's so cute, too. I was like, oh, I love this little place that you live. And, like, everything was walking distance to her house, mm-hmm. which is super awesome. All of our friends that moved to Midtown at some point, like, they just go, they get into this Midtown bubble because, like you said, they just, everything's walking distance. Yeah. Everything you could need is right there. So Midtown, we, we a lot of the times we call people in midtown like the midtown bubble people <laughs> love it <laughs> yeah well i'm super amped because i am no historian but you guys are history freaks and so <laughs> i'm really stoked to have you guys on the show to teach me and all of my listeners about a very significant part of history specifically relating to women yes which is the salem witch trials and yes. so i feel like everybody knows about this but like our level of like total understanding of it is probably varies from person mm-hmm. to person like for me i don't remember hearing about it or learning about it since i studied it like in school which was probably during a history class maybe in the fifth grade like i don't even know when but it <laughs> yeah. was a long time ago and you better believe i was not paying that much attention <laughs> um but i know like since then there's been like a, uh, a show on like hbo or so- some show there's like the salem uh television show uh-huh. we've had like so many different things pop up in just pop culture relating to witchcraft yes and the irony is that i swear like witchery is trending now it, it really which is, is like <laughs> almost offensive since women were being hung at the stake and lit on fire for being witches back yes. in the day yeah for, for some reason my tiktok feed like dips <laughs> a little toe into like wit they call it witch talk i don't yes. know why i don't know how i got on this but uh, there's a little bit of witch talk that I am a part of that I yeah. is on my Oh feed. my god, I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's. I think we all peripherally know about the Salem witch trials, but there are so many layers to it. And I also think yeah. when most of us learned about it, like you said, I, I can't recall myself either. Was it fifth grade when I learned about it? But those layers and the way that we understand it now is completely different than how we could have understood it as a kid. So as we get going into the story, you'll see like all these layers and potentially all the motivations behind why this happened. Yeah. Speaking of layers. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That was a good segue. Let's get into our cocktail guys. Because of course we had to, (laughs) we had to create a cocktail that goes along with the Salem witch trials. I'm Um, so impressed by that segue. It was so good. Uh, So, what I came up with, this is basically like a play off of a bunch of different cocktails. I, I was looking for something with the name witch in it when we originally um, were uh, researching the Salem witch trials for our own podcast. And I decided there was just too many different variants, too, too many different things. So I came up with my own cocktail. 
And it's called Leah's Witch Bitch Cocktail. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's what this is. It's kind of like a tequila sunrise, except it's made with vodka. So it contains a shot of vodka, a squeeze of lemon and lime juice, um, half a cup of pomegranate juice, which is kind of a lot. I don't I don't necessarily you don't have to do the full half cup, people. I and do. then Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then a half a cup of OJ on top of that. And you're supposed to layer it, but then I I got a really great picture of mine layered and then it is no longer layered five seconds later. So <laughs> no judgment if you don't layer it, but um, yeah, it's super yummy. I, I think we all, yeah, we all have our, our, I made a here. triple. You made a triple. Did you nice. really? That's fantastic. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know what guys, this is the first time since I've launched my podcast that I haven't had to tell a story. So oh. I'm kicking back. I'm throwing Sit my back. feet up. I'm drinking my triple vodka, witch bitch, and I'm going to just go with the flow and enjoy the ride here. <laughs> I love I this love it. so I much. Love that, yeah. I love that we could have we could do this for you. Yes, <laughs> you give me the you. opportunity to drink three, uh, three shots. Yes. Cocktail. I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't get the witch aesthetic down though. I couldn't pull off the crushed ice, but it's a very nice blood purple, which yes. is, you know, maybe is fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also just thinking you should make a TikTok video making this recipe and like tag witch talk. Oh, <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, they, they who might knows? be like, you know what? Yes, Leah, you, you you feel us, you get us. Yeah, maybe they'll thoroughly enjoy it, or maybe I'll get cursed by witches. Oh, yeah, I don't I know. guess that's just, still true. Just <laughs> make sure, lightly. make sure when you do your video that you have your middle part and your oh yes, right, you know, and your jeans and all that. Yeah. Right. Don't even bother showing the bottom half; it, it's too risky. Yeah. It's too middle risky. part. <laughs> Too risky. All right. Well, cheers, witches. Cheers, guys. And then we'll this get started. So good. Well, let's let's get into it. Yeah. So, thank you again for having us on the show. We're super excited to be here. And what we are going to be discussing today is one of the craziest, most bizarre, and most tragic incidents in colonial history, and it's all about the ladies. We are talking about none other than the Salem witch trials, like you already shared. Over the years of 1692 and 1693, over 200 people were accused of witchcraft, with over 20 of them being executed for the crime and another five dying while behind bars. These accusations came as a result of mass hysteria of demonic possession that swept across colonial Massachusetts. Today, those accused have been annulled of their guilty verdicts, but that doesn't change history and that doesn't change the culture the climate and the deep roots of bitterness that actually still reside in massachusetts to this day no way yes it's like and we'll get into it more as we keep going but where this particular incident happened in massachusetts it's like voldemort like you do not speak of it yeah that (gasps) that which shall not be named yeah it's it's that deeply rooted Mm mm-hmm So we covered this, uh, the Salem Witch Trials on our podcast as well. We covered it in a two-parter episode. So something that I want to say up front is that even our two-parter episode was not enough. I could actually talk about this for 100 years. So I just want your (laughs) audience to know that while we will be touching on a lot of details here today, it's definitely not all-encompassing and there's still so much more to learn. 
Well, they can totally swing by your podcast afterwards and get Absolutely. the even fuller scoop on Absolutely. the trials. Absolutely. I like cool. it. Okay. So let's start with where Salem is. Many people to this day do not actually know the difference between Salem Village, which is now today called Danvers, and Salem Town, which is now today Salem, Massachusetts. When this incident occurred in the early 1690s, there were actually two Salems in Massachusetts. And the difference between the two of them is so important. So we've uploaded a map here for you to check out, Melissa. And it's uh, it's the Salem Village versus Salem Town one. And I want you just to kind of check it out while I discuss the differences. So Salem Town on this map is what is now Salem, Massachusetts today. And as you can see on the map, Salem town is right there along the water. So Salem town was actually a really happening place, having a successful port and all of that. So as you move about 10 miles inland though, you have Salem village, not as close to the water and therefore not the happening city with immediate access to the port. Salem Village was a poorer and smaller agricultural community. I think we see this in all states today, right? You know, like you have your your cities and then you have kind of the more rural areas, right? There were some major conflicts within Salem Village due to the differing opinions between Salem Village and Salem Town. There were those within the village that wanted to separate themselves completely from the thriving Salem Town, while others, kind of like the residents living closer along the border of the village and the town, wanted to stay connected to the rich economy of Salem Town. The extremely religious within the community believed that the village needed to remove themselves from the temptation and corruption of the town completely. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we'll see a lot of this, like, politics come into play a little bit later, too. So we know religion played... politics. Yeah, (laughs) shocker. We know religion played a huge part in all of this. The Puritans that settled in Salem were some of the more uh, radical Protestants that wanted a true separation from the Church of England and its strong resemblance to its predecessor, the Roman Catholic Church. The most radical of these Puritans were the ones that were living deep within Salem Village, just like Rachel said. And something to keep in mind, because this is going to come up a lot later, um, are Puritan beliefs in regards to women. So think back to the story of Adam and Eve and how it was Eve that tempted Adam to eat from the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Men didn't have free will. No. No. (laughs) Eat the apple. (laughs) So Puritans used this story to essentially say that Puritan men are wholesome and more moral, and Puritan women are basically just vehicles of the devil. So that's really nice. Um, <laughs> love right. love putting that, that uh, you know, blanket statement over everyone. Uh, attending church was imperative. If you missed service, you could be punished. Even though as women, all you were allowed to do in church was sit silently. Women had no say whatsoever in the community and especially not in the church. Um, it's very like Handmaid's Tale sounding. Yeah, totally. Um, I know, Rachel, that was the parallel you drew in our episode. Mm -hmm. The census from Massachusetts around this time shows that women with names such as silence, fear, and be fruitful were very common, which, again, very Handmaid's Tale. Those were their first names? Yes. 
Isn't that yes. what? That was that's from a census in Massachusetts. The one that, the at one that, that gets time. me is be fruitful. <laughs> and then watch her have no children. It's like, <laughs> oh my god, how yeah. weird. Yes, very Handmaid's Tale like, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your name is literally silence. <laughs> As we're so fucked yeah. up. It's really yeah. fucked up. As we're diving into the story, just remember that in the society, it was believed that women were inherently sinful and evil and more susceptible to damnation. This is the climate and context for where the accusations of witchcraft would take place. In addition to this climate, witchcraft was a widely publicized concept and an excuse for really any behavior whatsoever that did not align with the Puritan belief system. For example, a dispute as minor as arguing about a property line could and often did lead to allegations of witchcraft. The belief was that it was the devil that had made one neighbor neighbor argue with the other or do something bad that the other neighbor didn't like. And therefore, you have a witch. I'm... (laughs) Not oversimplifying things here. That is actually how simple or one, one single-sided they were. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm trying to, like, figure out, like, where did the idea of witch even come from? Like, Ooh, I actually just saw a TikTok about this. I don't know how accurate this is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm bringing everything back to TikTok. But, like, there's this guy that said that he just read somewhere that – Witches, like the witches that you and I think of, you know, like the stereotypical witch with like the pointy hat, yeah, broomstick, all points to women who like would brew beer and were like selling their brewed beer because like they would wear the pointy hats, uh-huh. um, to it to so people could see them in a market full of people and know where to find them, and they would have brooms to like sweep away stuff that was happening during the beer brewing process and they would have like clothes in their things for the beer brewing process and all the things that like puritanical society kind of like stigmatized towards which 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 is was actually and again i don't know how accurate this is but like it can be tied or linked to women who brewed beer and men just didn't want them to do that (laughs) Yeah, and they probably had like a drunk cackle, like ha 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh my yeah, and God. I, th- I think okay. it just a lot of these ties, regardless of exactly the origins, are to place this uh, blanket statement over women, right? And, and mm-hmm. just and to have an excuse for the simplest of things, such as the example that Leah just brought up, like that is an actual historical fact that there was an incident where these neighbors were arguing about their property lines like my yard ends here well my yard ends here and because of this argument they were having with each other it was assumed that one of them was a witch that's why he was being argumentative like he wasn't just having a bad day he was oh Oh my god oh my god (laughs) i would be considered a witch so quickly (laughs) oh yeah i feel like like all women in this generation would be witches we're all i mean but then we'd just be taking over the world i mean i I definitely would because my name would certainly not be silence i'm just (laughs) saying so (laughs) all right so in the years leading up to the witch trials there was a minister whose name was cotton 
Mather, he published a book in which he theorized that every sinful act committed by a human was the result of the devil overtaking their body, essentially turning them into a witch and making them commit sin. So basically there were just weird named names all around back then. Cotton. Yeah, Cotton Mather. And I always struggle with his name because really close to us here in Sacramento, there's a, a county or a city called Mather and it's yeah. spelled the exact same way. So, but his name is pronounced Mather. <laughs> so Mather also popular, popularized the theory that those possessed by the devil, aka witches, exhibited symptoms such as loud outburst and seizure-like body convulsions. So these were the types of stories that permeated colonial culture. The Salem witchcraft craze wasn't anything new, nor isolated. Europe itself went through its own witchcraft craze that lasted all the way from the 1300s to the 1600s. And again, these are the stories that heavily influenced colonial adults and children alike. So... Let's jump back to Salem. In 1689, a man by the name of Samuel Paris became the reverend of Salem Village. Paris was not particularly liked. He was thought to be really greedy and to spend the church's money frivolously. So over time, Salem Village eventually stopped paying Paris for his dues. And is it then any surprise that just a month later, the rumors that would lead to the witch trials began in Reverend Paris's household? When Paris came to Salem Village, he brought along with him his wife, three children, their niece, and two people that he had enslaved, one of which was a woman named Tituba. So it's January of 1692 that rumors started swirling around about possible witchcraft in Salem Village. In Reverend Paris's own house, one of his daughters and one of his nieces began behaving very oddly. According to historical records, the girls were doing creepy ass shit, like screaming at random, making weird noises, and contorting their bodies. They claimed they could feel their bodies being pinched or like there were pins being stuck in them, although doctors could never find any evidence of any physical afflictions. What was going on within the Paris household couldn't be ignored. Everyone in the village knew about it because not only were the girls behaving like this at home, they would also sometimes, seemingly at random, break out in these fits in the middle of a church service. Not too long after this, a handful of other girls in the village began exhibiting similar symptoms. One such girl was 17, maybe 18, we're not sure, uh, but around that age, her name was Mercy Lewis. Mercy had had a pretty effed up life. She survived two attacks by Native American tribes, but her family had not. And so she was housed as a servant in Reverend George Burroughs' house for some time. Burroughs had previously been the reverend for Salem Village. After staying with the Burroughs for some time, Mercy then became a servant in the home of Thomas Putnam. This is important because Mercy began exhibiting what I will call demonic behaviors and so did other people within the Putnam household so remember the Putnams because they're going to become really important Mm -hmm. later I know this is a lot of names but I totally remember that name though yeah do you yeah Yeah. they're going to become very important later so things start heating up and everyone in the village is now under the impression that there are witches 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 amongst them (laughs) that are afflicting these poor girls legend has it that around this time there was a theory about how one could make a witch reveal themselves and this theory involved baking a cake in order to make this cake you were to mix rye flour with the urine of the afflicted person 
Oh my god. Yeah. Why do we always get assigned the cooking tasks? Like really? Even back in the witch days we're being thrown in the kitchen? Like give me a fucking break. I just yeah. appreciate that the cocktail Leah put together tonight was not inspired by this recipe here. Yeah. For real. <laughs> so you would bake this cake and feed it to a dog. Ugh. Thank God you don't feed it to another person. And the dog could then supposedly like point to the witch, whoever the witch was. So this ritual was performed. So outrageous. Yeah, this ritual was performed at the suggestion of a neighbor of the Parises, but she wasn't the one that made the cake. Tichaba was told to make this cake, and then she was vilified for it. Reverend Paris believed this cake ritual to be some sort of dark magic in and of itself and denounced the practice. And Tichaba in church in front of the community was outcast. Mm-hmm. That's important to note because kids are not stupid. They know when something is going down. And we talk about we talked about this a lot in our episode where I was like, okay, once all the other young girls are start getting into it, it's like, well, they see these two knuckleheads are behaving this way and getting yeah. a crap ton of attention. Yeah. So why, you know, if they want attention too, I could see that that might be why they would start mm-hmm. behaving that way. Totally. So... Regardless, kids know when something is going down and when someone is in trouble. So it doesn't come as much of a surprise to me that when the girls were told to point out who the witches in the community were that afflicted them, Tichaba was the first named. Not only was Tichaba already in trouble because of the cake incident, but she wasn't a particularly favored person in the community even before the accusation started. She was a Native American, likely from Barbados, uh, which embodied all of the colonists' fears. They were terrified of the Native Americans and believed them to be involved in devil worship and voodoo magic. As one, a female, and two, a Native American, and three, an enslaved person, Tichaba was virtually the lowest class possible. Shortly thereafter, another woman was accused by the girls of being a witch. Her name was Sarah Osborne, and she was also not very well-liked in the community because she hadn't showed up for church in some three years, and because (laughs) shortly... Yeah. That's a long time, I mean... (laughs) In a small village, you ain't shown up for three years. That's a long time. They're like oh, taking yeah. attendance at the door. <laughs> I mean, obviously yeah, they the were. Small... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and then also because shortly after her husband had died, she married her indentured servant and was in legal disputes with her own children over her late husband's property. So again, anything that was just out of the total norm day to day was considered witchcraft. Yeah. Finally, the girls accused one other woman named Sarah Good, who was virtually despised in the community because she, her husband, and children were beggars and homeless. Again, like we said before, children aren't stupid. They, I think it's a very real possibility that they caught on to the three most disliked people in the community, and those were the people they chose to accuse. Yeah. So the three women accused of being witches were then brought before the magistrates of the town. And while in the courtroom, the accusers or the afflicted, if that's what we want to call them, would start bleeding from their hands and stand up and scream that it was one of the witches before them that was pricking them with needles. That was yes. this really happening? Yes. <laughs> I will tell you a story very shortly about kind of 
what's going on behind the scenes here. Okay. Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good both refused to confess. They were adamant that they were not witches and had nothing to do with what was going on with the village girls. Tituba, on the other hand, did confess. Now, it's important to provide some context for Tituba. We already established that she was from Barbados and she was enslaved by Reverend Paris. As an enslaved person, Tituba had been beat by Paris before. In fact, Tituba had just been beaten the day before when she confessed about making that witch cake. So in addition to likely doing what she felt she had to do in order to avoid another beating, I also think it's possible that there were language or cultural barriers. Mm. I think she was picking up on social cues that if she just told the magistrates what they wanted to hear, she might be able to avoid another beating and ultimately a conviction. There are also a bunch of unfounded stories and misconceptions about Tichuba's culture that led to rumors that Tichuba had long been teaching the girls in Paris's household how to do fortune telling and telling them of really salacious stories of having sex with demons. Historians haven't been able to pinpoint if this is actually true or not, but these are the stories that are circulating at the mm-hmm. time. In the courtroom, Tichuba told a tale about the devil coming to her and that he bid her to serve him. She told all of these creepy stories about seeing the devil in animal forms, such as a black dog, yellow birds, red cats, whatever you like. The transcripts for the hearings are very clearly coerced. Tichuba was asked very leading, very specific questions. And at their leading, Tichuba ended up telling the magistrates a tale of how she signed the devil's book in her blood alongside the names of Osborne, Good, and seven other Salem village women. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Over the course of the following months, several more were accused and several... Uh, more became a quote unquote afflicted. Mm. Uh, Things really started getting crazy when some of those accused of witchcraft included not only loyal church going women, but also Sarah Good's own four year old daughter who confessed to being a witch alongside (sighs) her mother. Oh my God. That is so sad. Tragic. That like breaks my heart. Cause you know, that little girl was like, I want to be with my mommy or whatever. Yes. She actually ended up becoming the youngest person to be jailed during the Salem witch trials at the then age of five. It's horrible. Uh, We have another picture here that we would like you to check out. It's, uh, again, a picture of Salem Village versus Salem Town. But we're hoping with this particular map that you spot a trend. So So it's it's the other map of accusations. Is it the one with the color circles? Yes. No. no. Sorry. No. It's called a uh, map of accusations. Map of accusations. Sorry, I see mm-hmm. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm looking for a trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just kind of where you spotting like more so the accused people versus oh, the accusers. Yeah. So there's a ton of accusers all up on like the upper northern side, mm-hmm. and then way more accused along that um, the river. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just like she said, uh, you'll notice on this map that the majority of accusers live deep within Salem Village, which is that north, like northwestern side Mm -hmm. of the map. Um, And then the accused were living more along the border near Ipswich Road, which was the road that separated Salem Village from Salem Town. So again, it's internal Salem Village people pointing fingers at people that lived literally on the periphery, like Yep. Off, you know, not in the center of the town, but off, mm-hmm. 
you know, off the grid, if you will. And those are the people that were creating some of this conflict because those that are living right there along the border are the ones that are saying, like, look at all this, like, commerce and the economy and stuff that we're gathering from, like, this profitable Salem town, but mm-hmm. Salem Village wanted to stay really rural, really disconnected. Yeah. yeah. One particular Salem Village family that wanted nothing to do with the town were the Putnams. Mm-hmm. We have actually already mentioned the Putnams earlier in this episode. They were the family that Mercy Lewis came to live with as a servant uh, before accusing former Reverend Burroughs of witchcraft. And after Lewis's accusations, others in Putnam's household, like his daughter and niece, also became afflicted and starting throwing out those accusations. So this is a big deal because the Putnams were a very influential family. In fact, they actually owned the the land within the village uh, that most of the other families were living on. Mm-hmm. The Putnams were also instrumental in getting Reverend Paris as minister. So does it come as any surprise in looking at this map that the Putnams lived deeply inland in the village and that many of those accused would end up being enemies of the Putnams themselves? And that many of the Putnam family members, friends, and their allies were the ones doing the accusing. Super shady. Yeah. And also, like, just the fact of, like, how much power and control or just, like, um, what, like, a presence he was to that that town. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Probably just, like, whatever he was thinking or doing is what a lot of other people just wanted. They just wanted to follow along. Mm -hmm. Influence. Yeah. And I think this is, like, one of the biggest pieces for me. in studying like the Salem witch trials now as an adult, like these aren't really the things that are taught as a kid. And I'm not blaming any history teacher for not teaching this. Cause I don't know that I would have fully uh, totally. understood all of it, you know, as a kid, but it, as an adult looking at like this map of like where the accusers were versus where the accused were, it's so obvious what was mm-hmm. going on here. Mm-hmm. Totally. So, so at this point, the court system is obviously overwhelmed by the number of witch hearings. Accusations were flying left and right. It was hard to keep up with it all. The courts were so overwhelmed that the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, Sir William Phipps, actually got involved and established a court specifically to deal with the witchcraft trials. Real quick, though, uh-huh. a lot of this is just like hearsay. Oh, it's all yeah. you're okay. Melissa, you are right on point because we are just about to get to what was presented in court. Okay, because I'm what like, was how slash are was not so many trials when we don't even have like real proof of what's happening. You are so on top of it. Those are literally the next words coming out of my mouth. So, <laughs> so the, this court was presided over by seven judges. None of those accused were allowed counsel because, um, like, duh, witches aren't allowed a defense, obviously. Oh, my God. They weren't allowed attorneys, nor witnesses, nor evidence for their defense. The majority of the witness testimonies in these matters that came from those that were afflicted were admissions of spectral evidence. Any idea what spectral evidence is, Melissa? Just, like, speculation? So, I mean, yes, it's all speculation, but spectral evidence is basically someone saying that, like, while no, the accused person didn't actually physically harm me, the apparition or the shape of the accused person did. And the only way that someone's shape or their specter could do such a thing is because the person had given the devil express permission to do so, that they had given the devil permission to use their shape to afflict others. These people were bored. 
Melissa? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, there was no Instagram going for them. One other thing I'm wondering, though, like I know when initially when we were talking about this, it was like young girls that were mm-hmm. accusing people. Did it end up expanding into like adults, men, women, other other people were accusing? Yeah, yes, like yes, I mean, yes. like we said, there was there even ended up ended up being like regular church going women that yeah. were well respected in in the community ended up being you know yeah. um mm-hmm. attacked through yeah. this yep yeah so nearly all of the evidence in the salem witch trials was spectral evidence and for a while most people accepted this as real true evidence in fact in the case of sarah good only one person came forward to attempt to debunk the specter theory while good was being questioned in the courtroom one of the afflicted girls screamed out and said that Good's specter had stabbed her with a knife, and she actually produced a broken knife tip to the court to prove her claim. But then there's this guy in the courtroom right next to her that's like, uh, excuse me, that's totally my knife, and I literally watched you break the tip off of the knife in front of me. Dot, dot, dot. So the judge gave no credit to the man, though, and told the afflicted girl to please continue with her testimony. But uh, could you, like, stick to the facts this time? Crazy, right? Yeah. Like, when did actual law go into effect? Great question. It's, I was going to say shortly after this. Of course, it wasn't shortly after this. But, but that's a great question because these courtroom proceedings are nowhere close to what we would see in court today Mm -hmm. things like hearsay and gossip and largely the testimony of minors that are not used in the courtrooms today were the primary source of evidence during the salem witch trials that's nuts yes Mm -hmm. so on june 10th 1692 bridget bishop became the first woman hanged as a witch as a result of the of the trials Her hanging was followed by five more on July 19th, and one of these five was Sarah Good. Five more on August 19th, and then eight more on September 22nd also occurred. One of those hanged on the 19th was a man whose name might sound a little familiar. His name was George Burroughs, and he was one of the many ministers that had served in Salem Village for a short period of time before Reverend Samuel Paris became the minister of the village. The Burroughs are one of the most were one of the most wealthy and affluent families in Salem Village and one of Reverend Paris's greatest supporters. So when Burroughs was brought up to the gallows, he did something particularly interesting. He recited the Lord's Prayer, which is our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, dot, dot, dot. You all know it. Mm. <laughs> um, now, the reason this was interesting was because it had long been reported that a witch could not physically recite the Lord's Prayer. Where did this theory come from? So this woman had been hanged in Boston just uh, a little before the Salem witch trials. Uh, it was a woman named Anne Glover, and under accusations of witchcraft, she was hanged. During her trial, she was commanded to recite the Lord's Prayer, but was actually unable to do so. So in fact, she responded in what appeared to be an unknown language, quote-unquote, perhaps the language of the devil, quote-unquote. <laughs> Her inability to recite the Lord's Prayer was what placed the last nail in her coffin. And historians now know that the reason she was unable to recite it was because she was an Irish immigrant, with Irish, of course, being her native tongue. Uh, But this didn't matter to anyone, you know, accusing her or anybody 
at the um, with the Salem witch trials, folklore spread that a witch could not successfully recite the Lord's Prayer. So when Burroughs did just that before being hanged on August 19th in Salem, this got a few people thinking. In total, over 200 men and women would be accused of witchcraft, with 20 having been put to death for the crimes and another five dying while in prison. When Governor Phipps, when his own wife was accused of witchcraft, uh, Phipps called for the dismissal of the court. That was the that was the last nail in the court's coffin, if you will. <laughs> um, his own wife being accused, yeah, which is just shocking. Yeah, and then he's like, "All right, let's let's uh, let's he's change." Like, that's enough here. hangings. Yeah, well, that's gonna be another enough. thing. I'm thinking is like, if all these people are witches and say they truly are witches, wouldn't they have just like witched their way out of it, cast spells, lit the crowds on fire, like? Or just said, like, no witch deuces. would go down that easy. <laughs> totally, totally, <laughs> totally. So at the turn of the new year of 1693, a new court was established to handle the witch trials. But this new court had one major instruction. They were not to consider spectral evidence when making their sentences. So does it come as any surprise at all, then, that of 56 defendants that would be tried in the Superior Court, only three were found guilty? Mm-hmm. By May of that year, Governor Phipps had ordered the release of all accused that were still imprisoned. And I wonder if, like, even at that point, they were like, oh, shit, maybe we shouldn't have, like, hung all those people. Oh, I I think they absolutely before. knew. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, just like that, the Salem witch trials, they're over. In the years following the trials, many came forward to state that they had been wrong about the whole thing. In fact, on January 14th, 1697, the general court ordered for the whole town to take a day to fast and reflect on what they had done to all of those innocent lives. In 1702, the court had declared the Salem Witch Trials had been unlawful. So within the next decade, a bill was passed to restore the good names of those accused. It wasn't until 1957, though, that the state of Massachusetts issued a formal apology for the horrific incident that occurred on their soil. Okay, so we're at the end here, and we have to talk about what the hell actually happened, right? Like, what what is going on there are a lot of theories here we could talk about them for a long time we're gonna make Mm -hmm. them quick okay yeah so the first theory was that the girls had been afflicted with ergot poisoning so ergot is a fungus that can be found in foods such as wheat or rye if ingested ergot can lead to physical responses such as hallucinations delusions vomiting diarrhea and muscle spasms sounds like a good time uh (laughs) this this theory was initially proposed in 1976 by a psychologist and did hold a bit of weight for a short time but over the course of the past 40 plus years this theory has been scientifically debunked for one while it is indeed true that ergot fungus very well could have thrived in the warm and swampy climate of salem and while again it is very very likely, of course, that the afflicted girls were consuming rye. The possibility of them getting ergot poisoning is really, really rare. This is because ergotism, as it's called, only occurs in persons that have a significant lack of vitamin A in their diet. Sorry, I'm getting super scientific here. Um, <laughs> we know this is not the case of the people in Salem that had access to a very successful port, which provided a, a steady um, diet of fish and dairy And additionally, in Salem, where numerous people could all live within the same household, what would the likelihood of one person contracting ergot, like, 
it's so unlikely that just the girls got ergot poisoning when their parents and and brothers and older siblings didn't. It's just unlikely. The primary evidence, in our opinion, debunking the ergot theory is the girl's behavior in and of itself. Ergot poisoning is just that. It's poisoning. It's like food poisoning. Mm -hmm. Using food poisoning as an example, once you've been afflicted by food poisoning, you've been afflicted. Like, you are... (laughs) We've been there. You know, sitting on the toilet for 24 hours. Oh, yeah. Um, Sick as shit, too. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Now, of course... Ergot poisoning is different from getting food poisoning from, say, delivery pizza. (laughs) But the onset and occurrence of the symptoms is not. If the girls had indeed contracted ergot poisoning, then they would have exhibited the symptoms consistently and steadily rather than um, what we saw, which is we read in records that the girls would have these behaviors or fits for like minutes maybe sometimes hours at a time, and then immediately afterwards skip off like nothing had ever ever happened to them. Additionally, one of the major symptoms of ergotism is diarrhea and vomiting and stomach issues, but all of the afflicted girls in all of Salem, of all of those girls, only three of them ever reported having any kind of stomach issues. Yeah, I feel like I can very quickly debunk that one, just because, again, you know, it's not necessarily the exact same thing as getting food poisoning from... Chinese food but but like it's not that different it's a poisoning it's a food poisoning right and so and we all have been there before you don't just act really weird for like 20 minutes and then skip off like nothing ever happened an hour later actually weird like no you actually just lay on your bathroom floor and wish you hadn't ordered the Chinese food right oh yeah it was (laughs) pumpkin curry for me oh that sounds horrible It's like, literally, that experience for me was like becoming a dragon blowing fire. Oh, my gosh. Curry. That's the worst. Mine actually was Chinese food. And the super unfortunate part, I'm so sorry to Melissa's audience that's going to hear all of this because it's TMI. But I had recently moved into a new apartment. I was living by myself. So it's a one bedroom apartment. My two sisters, two of my sisters had come over. The three of us had the same Chinese food. One bathroom. Three of us with food poisoning. It's like bridesmaids. It was literal, <laughs> literally like bridesmaids. The best part too is I remember like one of my sisters coming back from the bathroom and just kind of being like, so how are you guys doing? And we oh, both were like, no. oh my God, we're miserable. Like, I'm so glad you said that because I've been feeling miserable for the last hour. Yes. Oh no. What a nightmare. Yes. But no one called me a witch. I didn't uh, <laughs> have like body convulsions or anything. So, okay. So the second theory, we've already talked about this. Kids were being kids. Women in, women in the Puritan society were viewed as second-class, inherently evil people, right? The next step below being a woman in Puritan society was being a girl. Female children had even less say and even less importance in the society. Children in general, male or female, were seen as the property of their parents. And in a typical Puritan society, the parent-child relationship was extremely authoritarian and entirely devoid of displays of love. In fact, playing was considered a distraction from godly duties and children were, therefore, not allowed to play. Which is just like, oh my gosh, nowadays, like, talk, read, sing, you know, it's like, it's like part of how your mental health your, and your development like children's mental health yeah mm-hmm. it's also just so annoying that the most 
like preachy religious people are always the most fucking weird they're always the ones with like the (laughs) dumbest fucking rules they're like the most toxic abusive like they're always the ones doing the twisted shit and it's like you're the one preaching the choir on god and you're the one hurting the most people like for real i know because none i mean i I don't want to say none but a lot of their arguments are not based in fact or reality yeah or science. But you would have to wonder, like, if such godly people, like, why would their initial perspective about half the population be, like, demonized? Well, like, how is who, that even a created, godly thought? Because who created those rules? Men. Oh, my God. Men, and they, who wanted to be in charge? Men. So, of course, they create the rules or these, uh, you know, yeah. uh, you know, God's message to them came came to them is that women are less than. Which yeah, and as the story goes, Eve is the one that messed everything up. This is this is the reality for these people. Mm-hmm. So, having said that about, you know, kids just being kids, is it possible then that the afflicted children saw this as their one and only opportunity to receive attention? And then when they quickly realized that they were actually being listened to and heard by adults and the adults were actually acting upon what the kids had to say, is that why this happened? And is it possible that these young women use this opportunity as somewhat of a movement, a movement where they bonded together and used their voices to create waves in society? Have you heard of the Fox sisters? No. No, you guys should that? look them up. We covered the Fox Sisters on my podcast a long time ago. And this was much Wait, later. I think yes. the 1800s. Mm-hmm. This sound, already sounds familiar. Keep going, though. But there are three sisters who were bored as shit and decided to fuck around. And are they the ones they that did the seances? Yes, but they would yes. do these, like, tapping noises. Yes. And then, like, everybody was like, oh, my God, they're spirits. And was, they pulled it off for, like, ever. Was it Houdini <laughs> that ended up catching them? They, I think, I don't remember. I think one of the sisters ended up caving and, like, admitted to somebody that they were fucking around. Yeah. Um, I can't totally remember because it was so long ago that we covered this, but... They basically launched this, like, spiritualistic movement in yeah. the 1800s, which might have been, like, the first big, the biggest one to occur yeah. after the witch trials. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't seance, know. Seance history and, like, seance culture from that time period is so fascinating yes. to me. Yeah, totally. Yes. So there is one final theory we're going to go over, and that is that money and power were at play here. I think, personally, I think it's a combo of the children and young girls wanting attention and this one. So we all we know there was a huge power struggle between Salem Town and Salem Village. And in looking at the maps from, from this episode, there was an obvious trend between those that stood accused and those that were doing the accusing. I think from those maps, it's clear that there was some vengeance going on from families, possibly primarily the Putnams, deep within Salem Village that wanted to show their position of power and authority against those in the community that live closer to Salem Town border and wish to blend the two communities. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is it, Melissa. This is wrapping it all up. Here's the conclusion. Because you can still see contemporary examples of the trials all over Salem, Massachusetts today. So we actually have three pictures that we want you to check out. These are more recent pictures. And I want you just to kind of share like what you're seeing in these pictures. Okay. So the first one looks like it's a police car. 
Yeah. It says Salem Police, the Witch City, Massachusetts, 1626, with a literal modern-day witch on her broom (laughs) flying into the night sky. And that's Uh, legit. (laughs) That's a real thing? Yes, that is actually a real thing. Right now. Yes. Rude. Like, why are they wanting to, like, I would not be having the witch city, like, blasted on my front door if, you know, especially being the town that killed all these innocent people. Yeah. Okay, so the next one looks like a school. Yeah, welcome to Witchcraft Heights Elementary School. Is this, like, the modern-day Hogwarts? Okay, but can we talk about... Can we talk about how cool it would be to go there, though? Yes! I went to Witchcraft Heights. Witch? And they don't teach any witchery there? Like, how? that's also rude. <laughs> like, don't... I would imagine to at least have it in, like, art class or something. That would be... That's just Like crazy. an elective. Witchcraft yeah. and wizardry. <laughs> and, and the okay. dog arts. <laughs> yeah, and then the next one looks like also probably a high school... A basketball team and their name is the witches yeah yes yes this is real this is is the other team just called salem yeah i think so okay that's weird they're the normal ones yeah (laughs) so what is ridiculously fascinating though is that all of these contemporary examples that we see all the museums today and the merchandise sold today that actually makes up 80 percent of salem's annual income doesn't take place where the witch trials took place at all because roughly 60 years after the Salem witch trials in an attempt to completely disassociate themselves from the mistakes of their past, Salem village renamed their city to Danvers. What is, which is what is there now? Danvers, Massachusetts. Uh What is Salem, Massachusetts today? The place that makes all the money off of being the historical location of the infamous Salem witch trials was actually Salem Town in 1692. And we know from that map that Salem Town was not the hub of this catastrophic event. So determined to disassociate themselves from this tragedy, nearly any tour you take in Salem, Massachusetts, about the Salem Witch Trials today, won't even take you into Danvers, where it all actually occurred. Do you think they have some, like, mandated order that, like, no one can associate us with the trials here? Like... I think it's just cultural. I think it's like they were so ashamed of what they did that, that you know, it's it's like how our cultural things are passed down from generation yeah. to generation. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably true of what is now Danvers is mm-hmm. that they're just, there was such shame that like their kids could sense it. And then so they grow up and so they, you know, like inherit that shame and just pass yeah. it down generation yeah. to generation. But yeah, also, it, like, the, even just the people living in the other Salem's town, yeah. is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, why is there, why would they want their entire life's existence to be surrounded by witch promotion? Like, it's the I, money. Yeah. It's I was say, so weird, though. <laughs> I'm like, I. Witchcraft Elementary. I'm on the witch basketball team. My witch police <laughs> officer. Like, that is so yeah. weird. But it brings in, granted, I don't know what these numbers are during covid post covid um but yeah. pre covid 80% of salem massachusetts income is from tourism wow. so like leah said the money talks right 
And I know that Salem, today's Salem, has approached Danvers, you know, where the actual incidents occurred. They have approached them numerous times to say, like, hey, if you want to get in on this tourism thing, we could have a bus that takes us around and you could make some money and we could bus people in to view the actual sites. And Danvers says, no, we want nothing to do with that. In fact, they've made it really difficult for buses to get between the two locations. Wow. Yeah. So I just think just for everyone to know, if you do end up visiting Salem, Massachusetts, one of these days to go check out some of these uh, sites and stuff, there are some really amazing museums in Salem, Massachusetts. They do have some like original artifacts, but just know Salem, Massachusetts now is not, was not where everything occurred in the 1600s. 10 miles, 10 miles uh, east of where it actually occurred. Yeah. That's nuts. That's so crazy. Well, so what is did we ever talk about the hand bleeding and court or whatever are we blaming that on the gluten intolerance like (laughs) i think what we're blaming that on is so yeah we didn't specifically address that but the story of the one girl with like literally taking the guy's knife that was like right next to her and stabbing herself with a knife i am just going to use that as like an example of likely what all these other girls were doing right do they have little needles in their pockets and were like pricking their hands i don't know that that's speculation but yes yes i just couldn't imagine like living in this weird Puritan world and being like, all right, we're going to just start accusing people of witchcraft and we're going to take it so far that we're hanging them now. Yeah. I I think what we have to do, and before, especially before we like blame the children, is just mm -hmm. remember their parents literally, like she said at one point, they were authoritarian figures. There was no love there. Mm -hmm. They were living in a world that we cannot even fathom where you step outside and you're not allowed to play and you have nothing to do. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you're told that, you know, God hates you and that you're the devil because you're a woman. Um, so we just have to look at it from or try to look at it from yeah, another perspective. Totally. Like, of course, of course they yeah. acted out in any way possible that they, they could, that they could to get attention, to get a, you know, a replacement for love from their parents, like just to get anything that was out of their normal, monotonous, boring ass day to day life. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and also just something more exciting than like harvesting potatoes or like you <laughs> know whatever the church. hell they did, and yeah. going yeah. to church where they weren't allowed like, to talk. Ooh, there's yeah. tea. What's the hot gossip? You know, yeah. At least Mary I- Jane is a witch today. <laughs> At least I would be able to say that, like, my church experience growing up was, like, pretty fun. Like, a lot of my friends were from church. We had Sunday school. We had summer camps and things like that, right? Yeah. In these churches, they were not allowed to speak. They were not allowed to play. Literally, that was, like, inbred in my church-going experience when I was a kid. Like, first we learn about Jesus, and now you have 45 minutes to play until your parents come and pick you up. You know what I mean? Um, That's not their reality. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it just goes back to what Leah said is like this almost was like a higher purpose or a higher meaning for them. It was just something to do. And it was an opportunity where they could speak and their voices were being heard and action was being done as a result of their voices. Now, the people that we do need to blame were the people that were like, oh, these little girls are like pointing to that lady for witchcraft. So I'm going to point to those guys who 
mowed my lawn without my permission. Um, (laughs) They're witches. Like, it's the adults taking it to the next level for, like, political or personal reasons. That's where the, you know, fucked up stuff comes in. Yeah. Yeah. They probably started thinking of that person that crossed them that one time. Ooh, must be a witch. Absolutely. How do you think, like, men got dragged into this? Especially since we know the Puritans were heavily, like, anti-woman. How did we get to the point where they started hanging the dudes, too? Oh, I thought you were asking something else that I also want to address. Um, So before I jump on that, what I thought you were asking was, like, why did the men even believe the women? And one of the arguments for that or, like, one of the the strong um, examples of it is Puritans came to America to remove themselves from the Church of England, right? And Puritans Mm -hmm. had this belief of being this city on a hill. In the Bible, you read of a city on a hill. You are outstanding. You are one of your own. You're the salt of the earth. And so in the Bible, it says that, like, as this very religious, very um, loyal group of people, you will be persecuted. The devil's going to come in. He's going to tempt you. And so I think, like, these men had this, like, kind of higher... Uh, opinion of themselves and mm-hmm. believed they were the city on a hill and so it wasn't unusual to them that like oh we do have all this temptation around us and we do have the devil around us that means we're doing the right thing that means we're doing good you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. That that's like one of the big reasons why these men believe these women I think of course they had like the power and politics behind it too but they also believed from a religious standpoint that they were holier than thou and that's why the devil was specifically targeting in an isolated in incident or targeting them exactly yeah um to address the question about like how did the men start being accused of like witchcraft and whatnot i think it's they, go ahead my my opinion is i think most of the ones that were accused were outsiders and people mm-hmm. that were like living on the fringe of this puritanical society um i i don't know of every case that uh, of men that were were hung but i think if I remember correctly, a lot of them were like on the fringe or had, you know, mowed someone's lawn without their, you know, like were, yeah. were the people that did the act that was considered yeah. ungodly that, that then people were using this as an excuse. Yeah. And totally. one of the examples of the men that were, was executed is uh, George Burroughs that we talked about, the guy that was able to recite the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, witches supposedly couldn't recite the Lord's Prayer, but he was able to. He was one of the former ministers of Salem Village that the Putnams had removed from his position, and they had put Reverend Paris in place. So I think that right there is yeah, evidence enough. That's crazy. And one last thing I'm curious about, like, I know you already mentioned, like, after a certain amount of time, they ended up, like, acquitting people who had been labeled guilty as, like, not guilty. But do you know if they ever, like, gave back some type of, like, I'm sorry apology or, like, gave money to the families that were connected to people that were killed? Yeah. Yeah. Reparations. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I am aware of. Mm -mm. And most of the time we see that, right? Like, we don't typically see reparations we covered um we covered the tulsa race massacre on our podcast before where there was a specific call for reparations and instead they constructed a statue and said like we're sorry here's a monument to you you know and we see that with the american indian boarding schools too like no reparations are actually paid 
but mm-hmm. we'll put up a really nice monument to you and we'll put your name on it. You know, did they even do that for the Salem witch trials? I know that they've marked like where the hangings were, which actually yeah. nowadays, if you look up a picture of exactly where the hangings were, it was believed. Uh, so it was called Gallows Hill. And so, of course, it was believed that the hangings occurred like at the top of the hill. Um, they actually occurred kind of more in the valley. And right now, nowadays, if you were to visit that location it's where like the a valley Costco is, or it's a right? It's a Walgreens. <gasps> yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. So if you consider a Walgreens a, a, a remembrance monument. monument, yeah. How American! Oh yeah. my god! It would have yeah. been better if it was a Walmart. Yes, <laughs> and a Starbucks. <laughs> yes. Oh my god! Oh. That's crazy. Yeah. So hopefully now, I mean, you learned like a little more about the Salem witch trials. Kind of have a greater understanding. I mean, we don't know for sure why they happened, right? There's yeah. all these different theories, but it provides more context for like, oh, this is the society these people were in, where women were really suppressed, children were really suppressed, and there was all of this political tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's super nuts. I. Just think it's insane about the two Salem cities, towns yeah. side by side, that weird dynamic. Mm-hmm. And just like, again, the freaking Puritans. Like, yeah. God. <laughs> Those crazy guys. They should have praying. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Those freaking Puritans. Yes. Oh, my God. That's so frustrating. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just so curious about, like, I, I, again, I don't know history very well, but, like, I don't recall, maybe you know, like, when did Puritans die out? Or, like, when did that start fading away? Or when did people start, like, pulling away from such a strict, conservative, like, authoritarian type of a lifestyle or religious sort of specter? Like, did that come, like, any time close to when, after these trials occurred? Well, I think it's important to remember that Salem, um, Salem Town was a small community. It was by no means like everybody in Massachusetts yeah, was yeah, this totally. puritanical crazies. Like it was just a small community. And I, I always draw a connection between like Puritans and what we now refer to as Quakers. Like mm-hmm. they, there's still these communities that are like mm-hmm. these really yeah. um, Puritanical, there's still holdouts. I think that over time, obviously those small communities have grown even smaller and maybe, you know, um, even disappeared in some cases, but we, yeah. they're still around. Nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally nuts. That was so great. <laughs> I like for jam packing all of it into one little episode on my show. You guys did a phenomenal job. Now I like want to just instantly go to your podcast and listen to the other two episodes so I can get even more tea on the tea. Um, <laughs> Thank but, you. Yeah. No, that was awesome. Um, gosh, now you guys probably know the Salem witch trials like the back of your hand. You're like, oh, we can be like little, professionals. I, you, you know, <laughs> there's still so much. And I would encourage anyone that's listening to this that does want to learn more. Um, there's a podcast called Unobscured. And it I can't remember. I think it's like a six parter or eight parter podcast. And that one, it's all about the Salem witch trials. And it is so good so if anyone's interested in like really diving in deep it's called unobscured and the host is phenomenal awesome yeah i'll i'll definitely tag it in the episode description so people 
can head over to it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys. That was so great. Thank you for thank having you. us. Of course. I'm so stoked that like one, all of my audience can meet you two and now know exactly where to go to get all of their big history moments in a podcast. So that's freaking <laughs> rad. Um, and then like before we go, I do this with some of my my guests before we leave. And today I feel like it's even more important since we talked about this huge movement in which many women were accused and obviously labeled as demonic witches and just all the bad vibes you could ever imagine um, to bring a little light to life. <laughs> yeah. Are there like any it. women in your life that you think deserves a special shout out, a little more recognition than maybe they currently are getting um, that you just want to spread the love and the word for everybody out in the world to hear about, learn about, and know about? I have to... I have to do one. So this was last week, but I still just keep thinking about how sweet it was. Rachel's mom. Okay, last week I got um, my second shot, uh, my second vaccine. Nice. Mm -hmm. And it was bad the day after. I had pretty bad symptoms, you know, like like a lot of people are having. I had like flu-like symptoms. And somehow Rachel's mom hears about it, obviously from Rachel. And Rachel's mom texted me and was like, hey, I hope you're feeling okay. Let me know if you need anything. I'm like, oh, it was just really sweet. And it came out of nowhere because Rachel didn't tell me that she had told her mom. And then she's just like, hey, it's Kim. Just wanted to say thinking of you. I was just like, oh, so sweet. So shout out to Kim. She is a rock star. I love That's- her. That's so sweet that you said my mom because I was going to say my mom too because my mom is just an she's an awesome person and I was going to say the example I was going to give about my mom is um, every St. Patrick's Day she always makes corned beef and I wasn't able to go to her place this year so today she dropped off corned beef and potato <gasps> salad while I was working from home. And in addition to dropping that off, she dropped off like this huge gift bag. So I open up the gift bag and you guys, it's the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's a little bamboo table that you can like stick down into the ground and it has little slits in it for where you put your, like it's supposed to be an outdoor little mini table that you put like between mm. your chairs, little slits in it for where you can like hold your wine glasses. Oh my and there's God, a whole, like the little stem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <gasps> She so, brought that for you as like a she, gift? Just because. And <laughs> corned so beef sweet. and potato salad. <laughs> oh um, I am God. a little peeved. Where's my corned beef, Mama Kim? <laughs> oh my gosh. Her corned beef is the best. March 17th is the best day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. That is so yes. awesome. Your mother sounds like a total gem. And there's yes. honestly nothing better than like, a friend's mom that also loves you. (laughs) Like, I swear to God, I, um, a girl, Ricky Bell, I know you're listening. I met her through the podcast and now she's been on my show like several times as just a co-host to run Mm -hmm. the show with me. And her mom is like a fan. And she like always reaches out and like sends personal DMs and comments. And it's just like, it's the sweetest thing on earth. And I I just like, I'm like, oh, my God, there's another mom out there in the world that's being motherly towards me. I just feel so loved. (laughs) I love it. Yes, I love it, too. Well, it's not even Mother's Day, but hug your mom because they probably rock. And if they don't, there's probably a reason why. And be compassionate (laughs) towards them. (laughs) 
Oh my god. Well, yay. Cheers to that, guys. Thanks so much. I don't have anything left in my cheers. glass, but cheers. Well, I had a triple, I so that's why I have a little left. <laughs> That was so much fun. I seriously love doing little collabs like this with other podcasters. Did you guys like it? In fact, if you did like it, shoot me an email at hello at mimosasisterhood.com or send me a DM. Let me know what you think about these fun, special little episodes. Um, Because if you like them, I can definitely do more. And share this episode with your witch talk loving friend. Do you have a gal pal out there that's a tarot deck reader, obsessed with astrology, into all that witchy bitch shit? Shoot this episode over to that girl so you can remind her where she came from. Thank you again so much for tuning in to another episode of Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast. And as always, be sure to leave me an incredible five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already, and tell all your friends and family about the show. Spreading the word via social media or word of mouth is truly the best way that we can gain more visibility and that we can find other women out there that don't know that we exist. So do me a solid and spread the Mimosa Sisterhood message, friends. Let's get it cracking. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.